Welcome to the NAFCO Working Film Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Frank. NAFCO is an acronym for the Northern Appalachian Film Collective. We are a 501c3 nonprofit media corporation located in western Pennsylvania. NAFCO would like to thank its sponsors, West PA Systems, the design build electrical contractor for your 21st century home and business, and Dakota, the Du Bois Area Council in the Arts. If you'd like to become a NAFCO sponsor, send an email to info at nafco.org. Our guest today is Greg Sorvig, and I met him a number of years ago when I was working on my Mammoth Cave documentary. And he came down from Indiana and uh, talked to me about Stephen Bishop, one of the early Black Cave guides. And we're talking to him today. He's involved with the Heartland Film Festival. He's been doing that for a number of years as well, and that's the focus of our talk today. Yeah, Ed, thanks for having me here, and thanks to everyone uh, who's listening as well, too. So um, I know I've been looking for great podcasts to listen to during the pandemic, so hopefully we get even more and more listeners to this program. We've been doing this podcast since May, so we're actually putting something out. Okay. Uh, instead of just being dead, and I don't know there's that many people watching them but we're building up a library of podcast stuff so no I, I understand you know so that's that's good so um yeah good to talk with you and hopefully people will uh people check it out oh i figured the second half we just talk all about star wars right well star wars and and stephen bishop and all this stuff yeah we are here how are you i'm doing good i'm doing good uh how are things out in, uh, where, where are you at? Indiana. Yeah, out in Indiana. So it's um, not too bad. So I like the crisp fall weather that we're starting to get now. But yeah, um, if you can see my background, we um, this was a, taken in July. This was at a drive-in theater that we have um, here in Indy that we're going to be using again for the fall. So uh, we kind of had a, a trial film festival with the short films back in July, which was a great um, experiment for us both both virtually and both um, at the drive-in so a hybrid model so we're excited we worked out all the kinks and we're ready for um, next month I guess tomorrow is already next month yeah uh, we're actually doing a drive-in movie film thing in October 24th ourselves. oh great uh, we wanted to do something our group our NAFCA group wanted to do something but uh with COVID, we can't have our regular monthly meetings or anything like that in person and can't have films. But I got to thinking, well, we have this drive-in theater. I wonder if they'd be interested in hosting a film festival for us. And yeah. so I emailed the guy, and like two minutes later, he called me up and said, sure, he'd like to do it. He's <laughs> never had been involved with a film festival before. So, uh yeah, because a lot of drive-ins, you know, they um, just haven't, you know, held on for the most part. So it's a weird renaissance for a lot of these drive-ins if they survived. Um, so, yeah, luckily, I think the one in town here, they um, were under new management in the recent years. And the younger couple, they were really excited and motivated. So um, it's interesting because we worked like in an AMC theater and um, it was pretty much a straight sponsorships slash purchase tens of thousands of dollars on our end um, and just more of a um, so no profit splitting whatsoever but yeah drive-in is a little bit different so it's been interesting finding partnerships and making 
everything work from a business angle and then finding movies and that kind of stuff too. So, yeah. Tell me about your involvement with the Heartland Film Festival and about the festival itself. Yeah, definitely. So I have been with, it's a nonprofit called Heartland Film out of Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, it was established back in 1991 um, with the mission to inspire filmmakers and audiences through the transformative power of film. So we really highlight films that can make an impact on you um, one way or another. It could be just the story, it could be uh, technical prowess of the film, but something that hopefully that can make you think some, some thoughtful uh, filmmaking across a wide gamut of genres too. So it started with a film festival, the Heartland Film Festival, um, back in 1992. So this will be our 29th event. And we've grown from a four-day um, fest with just maybe 20 films to um, 12 day fest now. Um, traditionally, it's been held in person. But with COVID, we've um, adjusted along with um, the rest of the film industry. So we're having a, a hybrid event. Um, so the big October festival, Heartland, um, takes place every year. And then we expanded three years ago to a short film festival called Indie Shorts International Film Festival. So um, we actually were an Oscar qualifier at Heartland, which means um, you can put in an application with the Academy. Um, and if you are accepted, you get to uh, qualify within a certain category of the Academy Awards in the short film categories. So there's live action, animated, and documentary. So we were granted live action qualification back in 2011. Uh, think of it as a Wonka's golden ticket. So if a film wins your grand prize in that category, basically they get a golden ticket, if you will, to skip the theatrical run. Because if you think about it, you don't see a short film in theaters unless it's really before Disney or Pixar film. So um, it's a great advantage for filmmakers and it makes um, it will save them a lot of money as well. So we qualified in live action, like I said, back in, starting in 2011. Um, I started in 2012 in a marketing capacity, uh, worked my way, way up through the organization, um, did programming and marketing for a while. Then I've been the artistic director, so the main movie guy, if you will, for the past few years. And we got um, documentary qualification for the Academy Awards back in 2018 when we launched Indie Shorts, and then we just got animation. So. Um, just to give you a scope, I think there are 142 film festivals in the entire world out of thousands and thousands of film festivals that qualify for the Oscars. And so we're one of 142. And of that, I think 34 actually qualify in all three categories. So we're kind of a rarefied company. Um, we've had seven Oscar winners. We've had 23 nominees um, in the past, I think, decade. So we've had a great track record. So. Um, in a nutshell, that's what we do at Heartland Film. We're a nonprofit. We have a staff usually about 10 to 12. Um, we have a short film festival, a feature film festival. We have year-round screenings and the award we give to studio films throughout the year called the Truly Moving Picture Award. So a wide range of content to um, honor film in different capacities. So uh, you're the artistic director. What does the artistic director do? Yeah, so essentially kind of... Um, the, the tastemaker of the, um, the types of films and the programming, if you will, too. So um, I'm, I'm the main guy. I consider myself the um, head prospector. Um, we have screeners who are volunteer-based. So if anybody actually listening to the podcast kind of have an open call period and we give interested people uh, a test um, of different films and we look for your kind of um, what do you look for in a film, how you critically view a film, analyze a film. And if you want, you can watch films remotely. 
that are considered for the festivals. And um, so we have about 90 people between both fests to do that. Then we have uh, super trusted interns and second tier people who watch things that might get uh, different scores that need a different look. Then eventually the film might make it up to our senior programmer, Julia Ritchie um, and myself. So hopefully by the time something gets to me, um, it's been panned uh, through the, you know, through the river process It's either fool's gold or real gold. And I uh, try to help make that determination and ultimately select uh, the films that make our festivals too. So um, in a given year, maybe 4% or so of submissions will actually make it. So it's, it's, it's pretty tough. And I know um, that's the biggest thing as artistic director that keeps me up at night, um, telling people no and disappointing people because I know people put their heart and soul into their films, but um, we can't take everything, but it's, um, and yeah, that's what I do as artistic director, essentially the main uh, movie man head honcho. And in addition to those independent films that submit, I work with distributors, sales agents from around the world, go to different film festivals, um, work as a jury member at different film festivals. Um, I actually, in addition to Heartland, I'm also an associate shorts program at the Tribeca Film Festival out in New York too. So it's, uh, it's really neat after you get into um, the film selection, artistic uh, director type realm how you can really spread your wings and work with different festivals in different capacities. So I've been fortunate to do, to do that too. But yeah, manage the flow of submissions, help select the films, work with big studios as well to get um, big titles. So we've had hosted Robert Downey Jr. when he had his film The Judge, so he was in town. Um, I've worked with Rob Reiner, Jessica Biel, um, other big names. This year we're working with um, A24, IFC Films, um, bunch of other big distributors in the past like last, last year we had portrait of a lady on fire and parasite from neon so yeah working from the big films that you probably are going to hear about the academy awards all the way down to the super indie short films as well are you involved personally in any uh movie yourself as an actor or as a filmmaker or do you just do the festival stuff I just do the festivals, but I, I mean, I'd be very honest. I did not know that film festival careers were a thing. And uh, I know I'm on the, on the school, on the media school board for Indiana University, my alma mater. And I try to, you know, tell kids about this, um, that it is something you can think of too. Because I think um, if you do film studies, you do film production. Uh, if you are not sure about film school, I think, as you know, Ed, I know if, if the, the easiest way that, you know, to become a filmmaker is to make films, just to go out there, take a risk, uh, make something. Don't be, uh, compare yourself to, you know, don't compete, create, I think is the old adage that Mike Leonard from the Today Show shared with me once, and it's very true. Um, but I, I've always had um, hopes to do different projects, whether it's from writing or directing myself, uh, perhaps even some acting um, but falling into the world of Heartland and film festivals, um, I was a volunteer screener watching narrative films, narrative feature films. And um, it feels like I go to film school every year. I meet a new group of people who really inspire me, who are creators. Um, and if there are personal projects floating in the back of my head, such as, you know, a project that, you know, our shared interest in Mammoth Cave over the years, there's always new things that kind of pop into my head for this project. So it's, um, a matter of finishing that too, but um, no, I think my biggest claim to fame, if you find me in IMDb, I was a finalist on America's Funniest Home Videos back in 2012, um, so I think that's that's my biggest claim to fame right now, uh, but yeah, who knows down the road where, where things might lead, but um, I love working on the side of working with filmmakers as well, um, even connecting creatives 
potentially to work together. We've had alums that have gone on to collaborate and get into Big Fest too. So uh, yeah, there's still hopes down the road, but uh, nothing set in stone at this time. What are you really looking for when you select a film to be in the final cut? What 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 grabs you? What stands out at you when you're looking at the films? Yeah, I mean, it's emotional res- um, residency. So, I mean, what resonates with you? And I know that can be very subjective. Um, and sometimes it's great to be at a festival to see things. But then there's also, you know, uh, the biggest thing when I got into this, it was, you know, potentially second-guessing yourself or going down a rabbit hole. You see so much content that you could feel jaded. But I think there are still magic moments where um, I'm watching something and um, – call it a moment of, of pure cinema. It's where you just kind of get that, those, that rush of endorphins, you get that tingly feeling and something just connects with you. It takes me on a introspective journey or I just, just wowed and totally immersed in the film too. But uh, other elements I look for are just authenticity. Is the world building, is, is the movie sincere and true to itself? Um, are there any evident corners that are being cut? Um, and kind of going from there too. And every year it can be cyclical. Um, Like when Black Mirror came out for the next two, three years, we got so many films that felt like Black Mirror ripoffs. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to follow a trend, you can do that. Um, But your film has to stand out. Um, And it can't just be a parody or, um, you know, a poorly conceived copy. It's got to be something unique that either takes something that's already been created and takes it, takes it to the next step um, or something that uh, can kind of go from there. But additionally, there are other um, areas as well that can be very unique. You know, we, we program for different constituencies, different groups. Um, we look for comedies, you know, documentaries, um, films that are, you know, black interests directed by women, LGBTQ. So there are kind of all these kind of different funnels to consider. I call it the, the whole Roy G. Biv rainbow scale when I'm programming an entire film festival. So a lot of, a lot of genres. So, I mean, if you look for that at any film festival, look at their slate of awards that they give to. So, you know, it's great to get into a fest, but it's even um, better as a filmmaker to perhaps win some cash prizes or accolades um, and see what, see what film festivals are awarding. Look, look back at their programming and stuff too. But yeah, going back to your original question, it's, uh, it's something that, hits me emotionally, something that might be unique, um, or even a unique vision. It could be something off the wall, but if there's something that uh, is just surprising, um, that can hit me too. So it really just depends on a film-by-film basis. But, um, yeah, it's really – I think it's – you have to do more than make just an average film. And an average film can still be good, but if you want to hit a top-tier film festival, an Oscar-qualifying film fest, you um, have to have something special and you have to – um, have something that you can, that's, you know, you've really committed to, in my opinion. When I'm looking at all these films that have been submitted to our festival, I see films that are, did really neat things and how they produced it in camera techniques or, or how they structured the film. And sometimes the film themselves aren't really all that great, but the, but the ideas that they express or the way they go about expressing them, I found to be fascinating. Do you uh, find that when you look at the films you're reviewing, do you find that you uh, inspiration and in how different films go about different 
Oh, definitely. And I'm, yeah, and I think there are different films, I think, that, you know, obviously budget is the biggest constraint for an independent filmmaker, too. So, I mean, um, if, I can tell that, you know, the bones are there. It's still a solid film, and you did something amazing with limited budget, or uh, maybe some elements are stronger than the other. That can definitely outweigh um, some of the other elements, you know, because I don't, you know, not every film's going to be perfect. Again, it's subjective. I'm going from there, too, but yeah, I think it's 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 really unique to see, um, and especially as we've had alumni or we've seen films come through the pipe over the years from different directors, um, seeing kind of what that their special sauce or what their immediate thing that attracted me to programming a film of what they've done and they've taken it to the next level, um, either with their ne next film or with style or something too. There was a a hybrid short film. Um, that we programmed at Tribeca and then also programmed at Indie Shorts called Framing Agnes. And it's about um, um, this LGBTQ story in the past. What they did is they took um, real trans actors today and they filled those roles in the past. So it was, it, it was this really unique um, circumstance and, and style. And then they took that similar style and they grew um, and took it to the next level with the film No Ordinary Man that just premiered at Toronto in a feature capacity and they really pulled it off to great effect. So yeah, it's really neat to see something new and fresh um, from a style standpoint or a technical standpoint um, and seeing that really connect with audiences as well. Have there been uh, films that turned out to be like big successes that you've uh, not accepted in your film festival? Yeah, I won't go into titles, but I think, you know, our president, we have a president um, at Heartland and he's been in industry for decades as well too. And it, it's a balance, you know, because if, if there are so many films that like, oh, this film submitted is played at every film festival under the sun. Well, is there something wrong with us? We're not playing it too. But I think that's part of it is if it's a film that, um, myself and our, um, staff and my, you know, second command, and we're all looking at it and we just don't feel, you know, a shared buy-in to the film or connected because, you know, for the most part, our constituency that we serve is local, very regional. A lot of these film festivals serve, you know, your, um, maybe a span of five plus zip codes. You know, we have industry people and other folks that come in and now this hybrid model with going virtual has really changed that and grown that. But um, ultimately it comes down to uh, not programming the best of other fests, but what resonates with me um, and looking through the lens that I've been hired to look at, look through in addition to thinking will it resonate with our audiences. So yeah, there have been titles that have gone on um, even to win Oscars within shorts and other programs too that it just wasn't a decent fit. Um, just kind of going from there too. So yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, f films, especially short films that go on to get nominated or win Oscars, is like finding a needle in a global haystack. So of course, you know, you'd love to say, Hey, we programmed another film that won an Oscar. Um, but I think staying true to, um, our process and everything too, is also very important. So yeah, we've definitely passed on films that have, got on to uh, accolades too. But the world of short films too, we program shorts within blocks of usually about 80 to 120 minutes tops. 
and they we put them from um, you know thematically within a program as opposed to having shorts program one through eighteen um, and kind of confusing our um, attendees. So I think a few films that you mentioned like that um, either just didn't quite fit a program as well, and then um, yeah, but. I can definitely see the, you know, how those films um, made it to that level, but it just has to be the right fit would be, um, I guess, my final thought on that. Have you had, uh, messages from people that are annoyed that you didn't accept Oh, definitely. And I'm sure you had a fun smattering of those too, but yeah, we have, um, like I said, we have maybe 4% of the films that get in. So there are thousands of films that did not make it. Um, what I've tried to instill in my job is transparency. Um, and so what we do after we send rejection notices out via film freeway, our submission platform, uh, people, um, who did not make it into the fest, they can, they can fill out a form to request feedback for their film and we will give you um, abbreviated feedback based on what our screeners thought about your film. And sometimes filmmakers take that to heart and not saying that, you know, we're, it's the gospel truth of what we're telling you, but um, this is just why you didn't make it to this fest. And we've had some people that have um, recut or taken that um, feedback very seriously and they've subsequently made it in, um, you know, the next year, which is not super common, but it has happened. Um, but yeah, I think we, you know, I'll, I'll tell filmmakers that too. If you get rejected from a film festival, always think long-term, don't think short-term. Because if you love your craft, you're going to have next projects. Um, you know, and, and let's just, I, I think I've used this anecdote before too, you know, every, you know, everybody has a baby. Everyone thinks their baby is the prettiest baby, but there are still, you know, ugly babies out there too. You know, you can love it to death, but um, there are going to be film festivals who might think that you have, um, you know, the most beautiful baby in the world. You might have festivals who think, hey, you know, this, you know, it's all subjective, but don't be offended um, by that process. And if you are actually looking for legit feedback, not every festival does that, but check it out because I know some film festivals will give you feedback. Um, my other piece of advice would be don't shoot from the hip. If you want to send a um, spirited or angry email, type it out, get it out of your system. Wait 24 hours um, if you still still feel inclined to send it. But yeah, I would not suggest sending four-letter words um, immediately to <laughs> a film festival that doesn't let you in. But yeah, we we've always gotten unique responses. But I think people um, are just curious to know exactly why or why not a film can get in. And most of the time, when you don't get into a film festival, you don't get those answers. But hopefully, we give people some peace of mind and um, some feedback as well um from that point but yeah we, we we always get some very nice and very sweet messages um very thankful messages we also get some that are pretty salty as well yes i've gotten a few that were not so friendly <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there a lot are you seeing a, a trend or a theme this year in the films that are being submitted i know they're making a lot of stuff up real quick about COVID in a general theme. What, what, what's hot this year in your 
submissions. Yeah, you know, we programmed a few films um, that were either made during COVID, but I mean, most of those films are submission. The way it works is that people submit their films months and months in advance, and we have basically a few months of whittling it down from that point. Um, so we did not get a lot of films, but I know one of our finalist films for features is 76 Days by Hao Wu and two other directors, one who's, um, um, who's anonymous, about the first 76 days of Wuhan over in China when the COVID outbreak happened. It just premiered at Toronto and we're excited to have it in competition. Um, and then we have, it's available on Shutter, the um, horror streaming service now, but we have a horror section of our festival and host, I think was actually pitched greenlit and finished in three months, but it's like a, um, it all happens over zoom and it's a seance gone wrong. Um, so it's a pretty unique situation. You know, we're all living, um, daily zoom calls through all that stuff too. So it's kind of a neat thing there too. So we're going to be offering that at the drive-in too. But in terms of themes, um, people have already been through so much the recent months we already you know we always have hard-hitting subjects you know kind of um especially documentaries that open your eyes to the world of injustice and other things that are going on but um some other super heavy themes i'd say uh, the refugee crisis is still very strong when it comes to the number of films submitted um bullying and to another extent suicide um we got a lot of suicide films it's a very, and, and sexual abuse as well. So um, it was a pretty heavy year with a lot of different submissions, but I think you have to do stuff. I would say for those films too, it's, um, you just have to be tasteful in how you present heavy topics. Um, you don't have to explicitly show scenes of sexual abuse um, and rape and things like that to get your point across. And especially if you want a broader audience um, for your film, you just have to be very cognizant of some of that content as well too. But, um, yeah, it just depends, I guess, the threshold for, for viewers and stuff too. But yeah, a lot of heavy, heavy themes and topics. And I don't think that's going to stop going <laughs> into next year with, uh, COVID and everything that's going on too. Um, the sheer number of films and the volume I'm slightly concerned about for next year, since a lot of the films, you know, it takes usually, um six months plus for a film shorts it can be a lot less obviously too but yeah it should be interesting to see we opened submissions early for our shorts fest and we've already been getting a lot of submissions so that's a great sign that people are still creating but it should be interesting to see um how many submissions the volume of submissions and what kind of themes um emerge as well too but i'm expecting probably some uh, darker serious stuff if i had to be honest you had the film Parasite at your uh, festival. Yes, we did. And what did you think about the film when you saw it? Was it something you said, wow, this is going to win an Oscar, or is it something? Uh, it reminds me like when Shape of Water won. I think I saw that movie early too, and I liked the film a lot and thought it was unique. But I think the, the way that Oscars have trended over the years are sometimes it can be a safer film. So it's not one that I thought, I thought it would definitely be um, nominated for Best International Feature Film, formerly uh, Best Foreign Language Film. Um, but I was not sure. But I saw it for the first time at Toronto just over a year ago. It had already been at Cannes. It had already been at a few different festivals. And so word of mouth was crazy. Every festival was at. It was just going nuts. 
the buzz was huge and it was like, I mean, it's just one of the, I think best cinematic experiences with a crowd that I've been a part of over the years, especially at a major festival where um, I saw it in a, a theater with other industry professionals and journalists. And usually um, um, it's not a very emotive <laughs> experience. Um, but I think there's a lot of, lot of gasps and um, excitement and just uh, an energy in the room. So saw it, loved it. Um, I knew that we could, we could play the film at that point. So it was, it was really gratifying to know that we were able to have this film. And then the fact it went on was, was super surprising. Um, Cause we featured 20 films last year at Heartland that were up um, as their country's official entries at the Academy Awards. I think there were 93 total. Um, and you know, a lot of serious dramas. We had uh, Pedro Almodovar's um, Pain and Glory with um, Antonio Banderas, and that was a, an amazing film. And if you would have, you know, uh, asked me a year ago what the front runner was going to be, I would have said that. Um, but as the Oscars uh, progressed and the season progressed, that film still got nominated, but it was pretty clear that Parasite was going to win um, for at least the foreign language category or the best international feature film. But it was kind of a breath of fresh air. Thought we'd had some amazing progress, and then uh, COVID hit. So. Um, if you think about it, that does not feel like it happened this year. Uh, that was just in February. So, um, it feels like an eternity ago to be quite honest. I don't know if that's the same for you. Yes, it does. It seems like it's a long time ago before COVID is like this stuff from back in my childhood or something. Yeah. Cause I mean, that was, that was a great moment in, um, I guess in the, in the purest form of the word globalization, I think a lot of people, you know, my have a negative connotation about you know taking jobs and other stuff too i think i grew up with learning globalization was just a sharing of ideas and uh, assimilation of cultures and i think that moment was uh, amazing in the globalization and coming together of uh, films and the the idea that a uh, film with you know subtitles could never win best picture so uh, definitely broke a, a glass ceiling um i still think with the diversification of the academy you know, voting base in addition to other great changes they made. I think it's only going to um, go up and to new uh, frontiers for the Academy. So yeah, it was very exciting, but no, I did not think it was going to um, take home some huge honors too, but very exciting. There's a film. I don't know whether you've seen it or not called last call with Gavin, Michael Booth. And it was a film shot in a, single shot split screen in real time and have you seen that film it's been making i'm not but it was in a phone booth no it, this girl is a uh, cleaning a suicide hotline place and she answers the phone thinking it's her boyfriend there's some guy on the other end that wants to kill himself. Oh, you know what? No, no, I have seen that. I have seen the film. I just saw that um, for another film festival. Yep, I have seen that film. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah, and it's all one take split screen. Yep. Well, that was a film I thought was pretty amazing when I watched it. Uh... Yeah, it was It was definitely unique. Um, I think you it, just got to think about the, the timing. Go... I wonder how many how many takes they had to do. So that's, that's um, yeah, hard to sustain for a feature film for sure, but they did a pretty good job of that, I would say. 
So, uh, what should I be asking you about that we haven't asked you about at this point? Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to talk about uh, hybrid virtual type stuff. Um, sure, that's that's what I wanted to talk about. Yes, I mentioned it in my, my note to you. <laughs> so, how are you running this hybrid festival? What are you doing exactly? Yeah, so you'll hear the term hybrid a lot, which just means some in-person mixed with the virtual. So our in-person, we're not doing any standard theaters. I know that um, technically big chain theaters are open right now, but we're not going to explore that just based with safety and that we have to plan months in advance. That we just don't, we aren't afforded that luxury, um, you know, for changing on a whim if there's any government policy change too. So we have, uh, for our fest, we have drive-in screenings every single night uh, for the 12-day fest. So we have four nights at a traditional drive-in uh, called the Tibbs Drive-In in Indianapolis that has first-run films in addition to repertory titles. And then we partnered with a place called Connor Prairie, which is a Smithsonian accredited institution, kind of a living history museum. They have a prairie village area, but they are also known as a great cultural institution that hosts uh, the symphony orchestra for uh, symphony on the prairie events in addition to being a staple of um, fall tourism and family outings they have a headless horseman event and they have uh, corn mazes and other stuff too so it's really neat we're able to have a true partnership with them they have expansive parking lots so we thought it'd be a great way for us to have three nights of screenings there too um, in addition to have, going back for the final four nights at the, back at the Tibbs. So there were some films that were higher profile that only wanted drive-in. Um, a few months ago, I think it's, it's become quasi-normal for films to be released virtually. There's also terms you're going to hear like uh, capping, geo-blocking, slash geo-fencing. And that was really the thing that we had to work through. Um, back in February, especially in March, a lot of film festivals were canceling, postponing, and... Luckily, we did not fall in that period where we were very fortunate to be able to keep our dates in the technology and the industry was able to progress to a point where we were able to comfortably move forward with some options too. But you know, the biggest things uh, for the concern was just, you know, people think you play a film online. If they think of like YouTube or, or something like that where it's free, no protections, but there are um, services we're using um, Inventive. There um, is a service um, that has ticketing in addition to a virtual theater cinema experience. So they have DRM protections that are used for um, other huge studio titles. They've already worked with some uh, big distributors that trusted them, which was a great turnkey experience. They have additional um, security measures. So many work with a big distributor like A24, who has like a um, Meenery, the our digital centerpiece. Um, that was the Sundance winner film that has great Oscar buzz and potential. Obviously they want to make sure that their ducks are in a row too. So there's uh, other um, means of protection from forensic watermarking, watermarking to standard watermarking and all these other bells and whistles that you can look forward to um, as potential options as well. So yeah, kind of going through that and then filmmakers just knowing, hey, would they still want to play their film? Because I think if you get into a film festival, you love the red carpet treatment, you love networking, you love being with an audience and having that taken away from you 
was kind of a, a sick joke at first, but then the, the thought was, hey, we're still connecting with audiences and stuff too. And as I discussed before, it usually be hyper-regional for a film festival, but now with our shorts festival back in July, we had 128 short films, 182 filmmakers um, engaged with us for live Q&As um, from around the world that were scheduled. So we were one of the first festivals that they talked about that actually had live Q&As, a lot of stuff has been pre-recorded. So we had people calling in from over the Atlantic, um, different parts of the world from 1 to 4 a.m., their local time, but everyone was super um, excited and pumped and glad to connect with other filmmakers and other human beings in general and to, to continue to share their stories too. So um, that was a great moment of inspiration for me and a lot of other people too. But yeah, I think feature films are, are, are a bit different as well because, you know, there's a bit better chance for distribution, uh, potentially making money back on your project. So uh, we had some filmmakers that, you know, super picky about what film festivals they can work with, maybe only drive-in, maybe, uh, you know, virtual, maybe both. Um, so we worked through that. So, I mean, um, every year kind of behind the scenes, if you're not familiar with film festivals, you invite films to play, but maybe they're going to have a release on VOD, TVOD now, or something like that, that disqualifies them. Um, there's a lot of moving parts with confirming a film. Maybe they're waiting for a premiere somewhere and you can't get it or something like that too. So um, we definitely lost some films. And I think a lot of it was just around the confusion of COVID um, and just what's right for the film. But we totally understood and we were very sympathetic to a lot of those films too. But yeah, essentially how it works is that I think 65 out of our 76 feature films are going to be available virtually. And most films, you can uh, redeem a ticket, you can purchase it. And then once you click the redeem button or start, you have 72 hours to view the film. Um, with some of the bigger titles, uh, the window is shorter, but that's kind of what we have in general, because usually at a film festival, you have, you know, the live window, you have the film at this time, that's it. You might have um, one to three screenings on average. Um, so it's an exclusive event where digital, I mean, let's be honest, even working from home, which a lot of us are still doing, I have two small kids. Yes, I can access film festivals from around the country and world, which I have, but the viewing habits are not the same. You're not hundred percent dedicated. So, you know, you do need flexibility, um, to go in and, you know, I activated this film. I can get to it within a day. Maybe I can watch it the next day, something like that too. So yeah, so we're having drive-in screenings. We have secure virtual screenings that are offered on an on-demand basis. There are still um, attendance caps, meaning just like a real theater, only X number of people can get in and access the film. And um, we just had to kind of make those negotiations too. But most of our films have an attendance cap of 400 um, people that can, can check out the film at some point. So um, if you're checking out our website, heartlandfilmfestival.org, and you see something you like, definitely check it out towards the front part of the fest because um, something could sell out. That's probably what you, uh, that's a good overview for you and probably a lot more than you needed to know. <laughs> Very good, Greg. As you said, there are thousands of film festivals all over the world, and you're one of 142 that's Oscar qualified. Uh, what advice would you give to groups like mine who are, trying to host smaller film festivals. What, what should we be doing to, to make our smaller film festivals successful? Yeah, I think, I mean, the biggest thing is just hospitality. And I think 
we've been told by people on different committees and people in the industry that, you know, we've never heard anything bad about your festival from filmmakers. And I think word of mouth is the biggest thing, especially for a smaller film festival. And if you treat filmmakers right, um, just from anything from just hospitality to the exhibition of uh, your films, quality programming, um, that word of mouth can really um, be a catalyst for growth and change as well. Um, so I think that's, that's the biggest thing that you could definitely do. Um, with programming, I think the thing I take pride in, there's filmmakers who have been at our festivals and they can come and they've been there for days and they're like, oh, it's nice to be here in Indianapolis where I can relax and actually go to other screenings, mingle with filmmakers. And I love um, the fellow, you know, my fellow, um, you know, counterparts this year. I love the different films. Sometimes I go to a fest and I can tell that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's a head scratch. Why is this film in the lineup? So again, it's very subjective, but it's great to hear from filmmakers like, Hey, I loved, I can tell that you have purpose in your programming and you believe in what you program. And, um, I'm glad to be part of that lineup too. So it's just pride in the community building, um, as well too. So just, um, moving from that point too. It's just great experience. It's, all right. Thank you, Greg. Uh, Definitely. I don't know what else to ask you. So I guess we'll. Yeah, I think this is the portion where we just talk about Star Wars. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. So um, go from there. Oh. Totally joking. If you, you know, we can, we can go through anything else too, or um, call it a day, whatever you'd like to do. Star Wars. How did you like the next to last movie? So it's funny because I know from following you over the years too, you weren't super thrilled with the sequel trilogy, especially the last one. Is that correct? You were not a huge fan? No. No. I think it's interesting. I think, you know, I grew up, um, I'm 36. So I was born in 84. So I grew up during the dark ages of Star Wars where I watched the films on VHS growing up. Um, the special editions came out in 97. So I think we actually sat front row for my birthday party, um, back then and stuff too. But I remember daydreaming about, um, what the prequels and the lore and everything else that could have happened, the Jedi versus the Mandalorian warriors, which was initially going to be like, you know, the clones, um, which kind of, uh, turn into a different concept and stuff too. So, um, I love new Star Wars content, period. I think I was excited when Disney bought Star Wars. Um, it was one of those moments I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing at that time, which was um, pretty cool. But, you know, there, it was very rushed. And I, from everything that it sounds like, you know, it just seems like there was some unrest and maybe not um, full consistency through the whole trilogy. Um, I was just talking with my buddy. I have a lot of qualms about just how, you know, The Force Awakens had a lot of nostalgia in it, but I feel like that set up the rest of the trilogy in a really weird spot. Um, and yeah, I, I think I'm glad that they're there. I'm glad the sequel trilogy happened. Um, but at the same point in time, um, uh, I would say, yeah, maybe not films. I'm not going back and rewatching them like I do the original trilogy. Um, that's a great way to summarize that too. But I think, I mean, I think for me, I was just talking about this, people get really upset about 
Luke's trajectory. He wasn't seen until the end of, you know, the episode seven. And then a lot of people don't like The Last Jedi, although I didn't mind it. I think probably my favorite out of the sequel trilogy. Um, but I think Han Solo, you think of his path as a hero in the original trilogy, he was changed by this experience. He's going to go on with Leia and stuff too. And then you flash forward. He's essentially a deadbeat dad who's doing exactly what he did. Um, like the original trilogy never happened. So I think what they did with his character was a greater um, faux pas than what they did with Luke. Um, but yeah, that's just my my nerd rant for you right now too. But I don't I don't mind it. I'm glad that the trilogy happened. But um, I love the Mandalorian. I will go ahead and say that I just um, absolutely love the live action show, the serial format, the passion behind it as well too. But yeah, let's get some of uh, your thoughts. Well, of the last of the sequel trilogy, I like the uh, Last Jedi the best. I thought it gave an opportunity to expand the story beyond what it had been doing. And then uh, when they got to the rise of Skywalker, it seems like they pulled back in all those potential <laughs> potentialities and, and did kind of a lame regurgitation of yeah i think there could have been a really i would have yeah it would have been exciting to see ryan johnson either finish the trilogy or hand over a full treatment and script for the next person to adapt or build upon um because i guess that that's just i guess the, the biggest um negative of the trilogy is that it felt like three pieces that didn't quite fit together um to be honest, I think they could have done. I think they really could have built upon the Last Jedi and made something really um, more triumphant. Um, I don't want to say with uh, fan service, but I, th I think it could have built to something really, really cool. I've never was a fan of J.J. Abrams, and I didn't really like the Force Awakens, and I think he mutilated the Star Trek series. <laughs> <laughs> so. I look back, there's maybe uh, one film he did out of his entire career that I liked. I, I liked, what was it, uh, Super 8? Super 8, yeah. And the rest of the films, eh, they're either okay or I didn't like them. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, it should be interesting because I think, you know, there's all of these, um, I can't keep track anymore of what who's developing what um, for new Star Wars projects, but... Um, I think Ryan Johnson was at one point was working on a new trilogy or at least a new film. So if that still moves forward, I'd be really excited to see what he does with new characters or um, yeah, something like that too. But yeah, Taika Waititi is doing a, um, a spinoff in some capacity, which would be pretty cool too. So I'm really excited about that. I think he did a really cool job in the Mandalorian and um, it should be neat to see what they take, what they do next. Have you watched, um, gallery star wars gallery on disney plus where they kind of have a roundtable discussion about different production elements of, of disney plus haven't okay. seen it well ed you are in for a treat i would say i would love to hear your opinion if you um, were not a huge sequel trilogy guy 
um, if you either, I think there's still um, free trials out there or something too, but um, definitely check out Disney Plus, binge The Mandalorian, and um, get back with me too. But I, I think you're going to like it a lot. Some other point too, if you want to follow up about other Man of the Cave stuff, it's funny how I, I still want to uh, develop either a screenplay or a treatment or a concept. Um, and, and candidly, over the years, there wasn't a satisfying um, conclusion in my mind for a narrative. But I think being at film festivals over the years, I've had, I, I just call it the silver screen moments where I'm in a screening and something percolates, rises up from my subconscious. And I'm like, that's perfect for this project. So I've had um, actually a definitive um, parts of this film, including the closing that I would like to move forward with at some point if that opportunity ever arose. But um, yeah. especially with the industry and everything changing too, I feel like if, if it's a story that I didn't move forward on to, it's probably not my story to tell from a director's perspective, um, but it's neat to kind of talk about and continue to daydream about and continue to research and Hopefully someday just uh, put my head down and work on it exclusively. <laughs> but if that day ever comes, which it probably isn't, that's just another excuse. Well, good luck in that. I'm interested in talking to you about it. I'm s still quite interested in Mammoth Cave overall and uh, want to hear your ideas and what you've got planned. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I think there's, yeah, I think it's still, um, I don't know how many people you still stay in touch with, but I'm, I'm still surprised that Roger Brucker is still around just because I remember how, how, how much of a um, just wealth of knowledge he, he was and still is. But I remember he was up there in years, even when we were there, when we met. So that's pretty wild and surprising and stuff too. Um, but yeah, I, I, would, I would love to go back again. Um, and check it out. But I think that's what I think ultimately would happen. I would love to take a long weekend or a week and get a cabin and just totally dedicate myself to um, being immersed in the experience and stuff too. Yeah. I, I almost was in another film with Brucker because he wanted to do a, like a history of uh, the cave exploration, a film mm -hmm. about all the things. And yeah, then we talked about it for a while and he decided, well, that they did a, a good enough job of it in their, in their museum that he didn't really want to pursue a film anymore, which is kind of disappointing because I thought it'd be really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That'd be really neat. Um, yeah. It's interesting too, just the documents and I, even over the years, I've not looked for a lot of the original sources again, but I think there've been so many more documents. I think I found a couple things that, we're pretty much I, like when you did your research as well, and I've shared stuff with you, a lot of the stories are regurgitated, you know, just kind of almost like AP, like if something hits the AP, a newspaper could pick it up. And I think like the um, river rescue story and a few other stories were covered by a lot of different outlets. Um, so I think I found some other news sources that had similar stories, but nothing else too crazy. I think the, the biggest thing that I'd still love to find is, definitive information about his death. And I remember I did discover the article that was a death announcement that predated the date on his tombstone. And I remember everyone was floored about that, but um, 
I think you and I as researchers, that's not enough. <laughs> I think we'd love to, to figure more out too. But I can't think of the guy's name offhand, but there's a guy visited the cave in like 1811, 1814, and he wrote an article about it. And a friend of mine, Bert Ashbrook, said he found 86 different versions of that article. Oh, really? Yeah. Line. So. Yeah, I, I still, I, I, the thing that still confounds me is that, you know, he was world-renowned. There was fan fiction written about Stephen Bishop. He was known all over the world. He, um, and then when he passed, it was just like the legacy was erased. Do you think there would have been some knowledge, whether it was hand-me-down, um, like oral tradition type stuff or something, but I think one of the most consistent things, the most numerous sources is the, the maelstrom after his death and that Stephen was so scared to go down trying to get um, people to the cave after his death, almost like, you know, trying to say, hey, Stephen's gone, but you can still come to Mammoth Cave. So I, I wonder if there was just some bad suppression to try to maintain um, attendance at the cave or notoriety, but it's a shame because it's, it's really clouded. I think the history and, and how he died and um, everything else, it's kind of, it's, it's a shame. Well, most definitely. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Greg. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> All right. Ed. Um, yeah, anything else you want to cover or you feel like we're in a good spot? I think we're in a good spot. Uh, we've talked for 50 minutes. and Oh, that's it? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't have any good questions left, so the rest would just be sort of rambling. <laughs> no, sounds good. Um, but yeah, well, th yeah, thanks for reaching out. Appreciate it. Now, Code would like to thank its sponsors, West PA Systems, the design, build, electrical contract for your 21st century home and business, and Dakota, the Du Bois Area Council in the Arts. If you'd like to become a NAFCO sponsor, send an email to info at nafco.org.